Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. We are, uh, well, thanks. Thanks. Got a lot to be thankful for. Hopefully you do as well as we get prepared to uh, celebrate our thankfulness by eating too much food. Uh, maybe some irony there, I don't know, but uh, hopefully you've got your plans mapped out and ready to celebrate on some level uh, all the uh, blessings as you recount the last year. And, uh, and so uh, I'll tell you what, Philippians 1 is where we're going to be. This morning, give you just a head start if you want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we put uh, black hardback Bibles in the seats around, so feel free to to grab one of those. If you're new with us this morning, uh, on Sunday mornings in the sermons, uh, what we do is we typically walk through a a book from the Bible, and so right now we're in the book of Philippians. It's our second week. We're in Philippians chapter 1 still. Um, This year, we're walking through a series entitled Letters to the Church, and so what that means is this, that uh, these New Testament books written by the Apostle Paul were originally letters that circulated uh, among the churches in different regions. And so, um, so as we read them as books in our New Testament, they were actually originally letters written uh, to the churches. And so we're walking through a series this year, allowing God to speak to us as a church on what it truly means uh, to follow Christ and allowing God to encourage us in the areas where we're doing it right, but also to challenge and correct us in other areas where we maybe we're not getting it right. And so we've made it to uh, the book of Philippians And uh, on the onset of this part of the series, I'd originally anticipated preaching verses 1 through 11 uh, the first week. So when you came in last week, we only made it halfway through. We made it through verse 5, and we're going to pick up the rest this week. There's just so much beautiful uh, God-centered truths in this letter that we're going to take our time walking through it. Uh, With any any luck at all, we'll be done by Christmas, and we'll finish out the year in in Jude, uh, but we'll just see how it goes. Uh, so Philippians 1 is where we're going to be. Just a couple things as we get started. Uh, we identified last week the primary theme of this letter is rejoicing. That as Christ followers, we have more than enough reason to rejoice. And this letter is written from a man who is writing these things from imprisonment. So that even in the midst of hardship, imprisonment, suffering, trials of various kinds, we have more than enough reasons to rejoice. So what's going to happen today is we're going to move on from last week where we looked at we have this reason to rejoice in our community, our koinonia, in that we have partaken in this common grace together. We share in a common gift together. We're on a common mission together. We're going to look this week at this process of growing spiritually into maturity as Christ followers at all the reasons we have to rejoice right now, even as we sit here today. But we're going somewhere. We're going to end today with the apex, the pinnacle of all reasons to rejoice. So let's read Philippians 1, starting in verse 6 together, and then we'll start breaking it apart. Starting in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in, de- in defense or in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that, cr- that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
So today is really part two of reasons to rejoice. And we'll come back next week for the next couple of Sundays and look at what it looks like to live a life of rejoicing. But today, we're going to finish up on these beautiful reasons that we have, these foundational reasons that you and I have to rejoice even when things aren't going our way. And we're going to start in verse 6, and we spend most of our time here actually this morning. Paul says this, and I'm sure of this, I'm sure of this, that he, being Christ, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now this is going to highlight one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith. And here's the paradox. On one hand, when we read our Bible, in particular the New Testament, we get, we get this beautiful description of the, God, the work God is doing in us. We are saved. We don't save ourselves. We are forgiven. We don't forgive ourselves. We are forgiven. We are justified. We don't justify ourselves. We are justified. We are made right. We don't, we don't make ourselves right. We're made right, right? Um, we are made holy and righteous. We don't make ourselves holy and righteous. God does it. So as we read through the New Testament, we're reading these beautiful descriptions of all the work God is doing in us and on us, which makes sense. But the paradox is this. At the same time, God invites us to participate in the work he is doing. And so we're called to believe. We're called to remember. We're called to consider or think about. We're also called to obey. We're called to surrender. We're called to follow. We're called to worship. And so it creates kind of a paradox. Which is it? Is God doing the work or am I doing the work? What's interesting is if you, if you lean too much towards either one of those sides, you're going you're gonna to fall into heresy. But more than that, you're going to fall into spiritual frustration. You're going to fall into a season of, of struggle. And so let's talk about it. If you lean too heavily on the work God is doing in your life, it's all him. He's the one working. I'm just kind of kicked back with my feet up in the recliner kind of like post-Thanksgiving meal mode, just letting God work, just letting it all happen however he wants to do it, you're going to fall into complacency. You're going to fall into spiritual laziness. Before you know it, you're going you're to drift towards a season of doubt and struggle and darkness. However, if on the flip side, it's all about you, and it's all about the work you're doing and your pursuit of holiness and you making yourself right and you making yourself honest and you making right choices, what's going to happen is quickly you're going to run into this wall, which is yourself, and you're going to realize, I can't do this. So you're going to be, be pulling up the smoke screen, putting on the facade, trying to project a better version of yourself than you know is actually there. You're going you're to fall into the trap of self-righteousness and pride, the place where it all depends on you. And your, your life is going to become equally void, meaningless, dark. You're going to feel like God has abandoned you. I'm working so hard. Where are you, God? And so somewhere in between, we're called into this, this paradox, if you will. God working on us and in us and us participating with that work. So this is where we're going today. As Paul begins, I'm sure of this. That he who began the good work in you, he's going to be the one who's going to be faithful to bring it to completion. Now, there's a couple of things. We're going to talk about um, the, spiritual, the process of spiritual growth today. How um, when we believe the gospel, it's like planting a seed. That's what Jesus uses in Matthew 13 to describe us. The, the gospel coming to us is like a seed being planted deep down inside of who we are. 
And eventually, as it grows, as it's nourished, as it comes to maturity, it bears fruit. Matter of fact, that's the only difference between the seed that falls on the good soil and the bad soil is the seed that falls on the good soil eventually grows to maturity and bears good fruit, right? And so in the same way that it's a struggle scientifically to explain the parts of that process, it's equally it's equally a struggle and confusing sometimes to describe our own spiritual journey. How does a, how does a seed, a thing that's dead, when you put it in the ground at the right temperature, with the right amount of moisture, how does it become alive? And then as it, as it grows under the dirt with no sunlight, how does it grow? How does it, how does it move towards maturity? And then it bursts out of the soil, right? And it begins to put on leaf and grow. Now, we can, under, we can explain photosynthesis and how the water works and the cellular, on the cellular level, how things work together. But ultimately, we can't fully explain how something dead becomes alive, bears fruit that falls on the ground, that becomes dead, right? That then becomes alive and grows to maturity, produces fruit. So it is with our spiritual journey. And we're going to look at the different elements that play into the spiritual journey. But at the end of the day, many of us, I think of it like this. It's almost like a submarine. God's work in my life is like a submarine. And I know that's a cheesy, horrible metaphor, so don't pull the heresy card out yet. But so if you think of it like this, a lot of the work God is doing in my life is below the surface. I don't always see it. I will oftentimes go through seasons where I'm showing up on first thing in the morning, reading the Bible, I'm praying, I'm laying my life before God, and I'm not seeing the work that's happening. Now, by faith, I believe it's happening, but I can't see it. And then something will happen. It's like a submarine surfacing, and I see the Holy Spirit's work in my life. Ah, see, I knew you were working. And then what happens right after that? Where'd he go? What do I do? Do I just wait, sit back, and wait for God to show up again, or do I just continue participating in faithfulness and steadfastness in what I know in my heart God is doing below the surface? Now, Paul is going to say this, first of all, I know it. And he's going to go on to say, it's right for me to think about you this way. It's true. It's right. I know it. God is working even when you can't see it. Now, if you think about the ways that God invites us to participate, one, believing the gospel. Okay? Um, and that's not just evangelism. That's every month we get together for communion. We're remembering, once again, the gospel, reminding ourselves of what is true, the love of God that, that has um, moved so much that he sent his only son to the cross to die on our behalf that we could have forgiveness and everlasting life. We remind ourselves on a routine basis of the things that are, that are true, and we believe it more deeply every time we hear it. We know that's, that's our role, right, to believe it. We also know that there's a part of the process where the Holy Spirit's working in us and stretching us and wrestling with us, and our job is to yield or submit. Oh, I want to go this way, but I sense God's Spirit has prompted me to go this way, and so I yield, and that's, I participate in that. We also know this, that God is working through the trials in our life, that when we walk through trials by faith, he's transforming us. I think about the counsel we get from Jesus' brother James, the Apostle James, in James chapter 1, when he calls us to rejoice in suffering. What a strange thing to call Christians to rejoice in suffering. James chapter 1, verse 2, he says this, Count it all joy, my brothers. Right? Where's he going? He's got to be going somewhere good. Right? He's got to be going somewhere good. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James, why in the world would we rejoice 
Whenever, whenever we meet a trial, why would we do that? Well, he goes on to say, for you know this. This is right. This is true. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we know that we believe the gospel. God works on us. We know that when we yield the Holy Spirit, God's working on us. We also know that as we face trials of various kinds and we walk through in faith, we know that God, even if we can't see it, even if we can't feel it emotionally, we believe in faith. God's working below the surface on us and in us. Now, this is a powerful statement of hope because let's think about what typically happens in our own hearts. When we experience failure, what's one of the first knee-jerk reactions Maybe where's God? Why am I facing this struggle again? Like, I've prayed a hundred times for this sin to go away, and it's still here. So maybe, maybe God's forgotten me. Maybe I'm not a Christian at all. And in those seasons where we can't see God working, we're prone to drift towards doubt, aren't we? We're prone to, prone to drift towards thinking or convincing ourselves or believing a lie from the enemy that somehow God isn't working faithfully to finish what he started. Why am I still dealing with this? Why hasn't God taken this away from me? If I'm really a Christian, how come I can't act more like Jesus? How come I still act like the old me? That's why we walk by faith. That even in seasons of struggle, we know below the surface, God is working. If you're taking notes, I rejoice in the work God is doing in my life. I rejoice in the work that God is doing in my life. And hear me say this, Christ follower, that's a faith move. There'll be those moments when you can see it and you know it. Somebody else will speak to you and say, gosh, I just want to encourage you. I'm I'm able to see God working in your life and in just such a beautiful way. And what's happening there? You're able to see it. But what about all the in-between moments? What about all the in-between moments? We walk by faith, not by sight, believing that he who has begun a good work in us is still working, even when we don't feel like it. I rejoice in the work that God is doing in my life. Now, in verse 7, he continues on and says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, because I know you've tasted the same grace that I've tasted in, God's grace never does nothing. So even if I can't see the work in your life because you know the grace of Christ, I know it's right for me to say this. God's working in you. Right? He's working in you and he's working in me. God's grace never does nothing, and it's right for me to think this way about you, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 9, Paul's going to shift towards his, he's already began praying earlier on in this chapter, and he's going to kind of shift back to his prayer. He's sharing more about what he's praying for, why he's rejoicing, his thankfulness. And what he's going to do is he's going to be walking us through this process of being transformed by God. So in verse 9, he says this, And it is my prayer, this is what I'm praying for you, that your love may abound more and more. Now, this is, this is beautiful. Paul has just, in a very few amount of words, summarized our spiritual journey. That you and I begin, as Christians, rooted in God's love. And that means everything. I mean, without God's love, there is no Christian journey to be had. 
So the, the understanding that, that the gospel has hit our ears, what has hit our ears is this. God loves me. And he loves me different from how anybody else on earth loves me. Not like my wife loves me or my mom loves me, though they're pretty good at loving me, right, despite my, my imperfections, right? But they still have their moments. When you are, your eyes are enlightened to the gospel, you come in contact with a love that's other than. It's different from. The love of the best mom can't compete with the love of God for you, right? Because let's just be honest. My wife only loves the, the me that I project. There are things that come across my mind that I don't share. Because I know I shouldn't. And outside of our marriage, there are actions and reactions that, 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 that I'm tempted with. <clears throat> I hold it in. And so, so at best, you love the me I'm projecting. But here's what's different about God. There isn't a thing that comes across the ticker of your mind that he can't hear. Right? There isn't a thought that you haven't entertained in your mind that God himself isn't aware of. There isn't an, a, an event or an action from your past, however dark it may be, that God isn't aware of. That's why it's different. And God looks at you and says, I'm not embarrassed. I know that about you, and I still love you. And oh, while I knew that about you, I, I sent my son to die for you. See, I think sometimes we, we come to grips with the idea that God loves us enough to sacrifice his son in terms of the projected self. I'm, I'm pretty, I can see why God won't be on his team, right? Yeah. Pretty good, pretty good at church, and yeah, I can see why God was in his son. And we, we, we failed to make the connection. No, the death on the cross was for our darkest moment. Like, it's in the midst of that that God loves us, and that's our, that's our root. That's what drives and sustains spiritual growth. I'll say this. Um, one of the things that breaks my heart whenever I speak with somebody who seems to be, um, their heart seems to be hardened to faith in Christ whether it's for you know, intellectual reasons or maybe they had a bad experience with church. For whatever reason, they're just not having it. And they're not interested. What breaks my heart is not that they don't want to be on my team or join our church. What breaks my heart is in that moment, they are not tasting the goodness of God's love. In that moment, they are blind to the love that you and I know in Christ. This love that compels us and changes us and transforms us. And I can understand why just on a surface level, a cognitive level, somebody might look at Christianity and go, nah, I'm out. That's going to cost me too much. But when we come to know the love of Christ that compels us, we can't say no. It drives us forward. It fuels our spiritual growth. And like we can't explain a seed growing and bursting forth from the soil, so we can't explain it. It just bursts forward. Rooted in Love and, I, and what Paul says here is this, that we may abound more and more in our love, in that which we're already rooted in. And the more we understand the depths of how much God loves us, the deeper those roots extend into the goodness of God. And guess what happens? We begin to bear fruit. We begin to bear the fruit of love towards others. Um, there's a beautiful passage from Hebrews Chapter 10, I'll just read a couple verses to you. Listen to the author of Hebrews describe the process of you and I coming in contact with one another and stirring each other up. Verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's that process again. We're longing for that day 
But meanwhile, while we're longing, we get together, we meet together, and we stir one another up. You know what that means to me? When I'm with you, and I watch you love me or one another, and I'm seeing you express God's love to you outwardly, that stirs me up. It's like fertilizer on this faith that's growing inside of me. Anytime my wife looks at me with unconditional forgiveness, knowing the depths of my sin and my depravity, and says, I love you anyway, I'm stirred. Not by her love, but by the love of Christ in her. And we're to get together and share that love with one another, stir one another up with the love of Christ. Paul says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. I'm going to reword this next one as we go through it in real time. I rejoice in the growing love. If you just want to add this phrase in there, God has for me and I have for others. And I want to explain that because it begins with how much God loves me. Until I understand how much he loves me, I can't love you well. But I rejoice, if you're taking notes, in the growing love God has for me and I have for others. Now that sounds a little self-centered, right? I rejoice in how much I love you. But at the end of the day, you know what I know? I don't love you very well. And when all of a sudden I'm compelled to love you well, you know what I know? God's working through me. And I need to rejoice in that. Holy cow, I just forgave you. Man, the old me, I would have held that against you for years, right? I just did something for you and got no credit in return. I'm gonna rejoice in that because what am I rejoicing in? I'm rejoicing in the love of God. Not my own actions, but I'm rejoicing because God is loving me well. And I'm seeing it tangibly because I started loving you well. And let's just be honest, church. Come on, let's be honest. We're not really good at loving each other really well. What we're really good at is impatience and frustration and criticisms. We're good at pointing out the flaws in each other. Whenever you begin to to experience God's work in you to the point where all of a sudden you start loving and you look at maybe somebody, your spouse or somebody knows you well, and you're like, did you see that? Holy cow, where did that come from? I don't know. Last year, you would have bit that person's head off and you didn't. You, You've loved them well. Let's rejoice in that. That's God's love. That's God's love. I rejoice in the growing love God has for me and then therefore I have for others. Continuing in verse nine. With, so this love is not unaccompanied. It's Love that's accompanied with an abounding and a growing knowledge and all discernment. Now, we're going to be real honest, okay? So if you're not, you didn't grow up in church, I'm about to reveal some things to you about um, the experience that some of us have had that grew up in church, okay? One of the products of a revival period, we've had several in the church, where revival breaks out, people get excited for the Lord, churches grow, right? Add more services, build more campuses, things just start happening, God is moving, okay? I don't in any way doubt the movement of God in those times. But what, if we're not careful, happens is, is an unfortunate byproduct called emotionalism. Okay, And here's what I mean by that. When God works in our lives, when the submarine of the Holy Spirit surfaces in our lives and we're like, whoa, in the presence of God, it stirs affections. The emotions start running. Some people weep and cry. Some laugh. Some are just excited and can't just contain themselves and just keep talking and talking and talking and talking. And, right? And these motions get stirred. If we're not careful, we will connect the work of God with the emotions. And we'll think, until I have that emotional experience, God must not be working. I'll just share my own example with you. So I came to know Christ the week after my sophomore year at a church camp. So 
So a good friend of mine in his church youth group, they abducted me from my normal life, from everything that was going on as I was wrapping up being a sophomore, thinking about being a junior. Mom had just gone through another divorce. I was struggling to figure out where I fit in. All these things going on. I, I got basically picked up from a church van and transported to church camp. This safe environment where people were stirring each other up in love and all these things were happening. People were singing songs and the preacher was preaching God's word. And, and here's what happened. I, I, I came into contact with the God of the universe. And my knowledge of who God is increased. And I came to this knowledge that God loves me in spite of me. It overwhelmed me. I had an awesome mom, but I still didn't know that kind of love at home. It moved me. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm going to stand up and raise my hands and sing with all these people. We're singing songs, and people are crying. We're hugging, you know, and making all these commitments. We're going to go back home and set the world on fire. All this fantastic stuff was going on. And, and here was the problem with that for me. I connected what God was doing with the songs we were singing. So when I came home... I pulled the music minister aside and said, hey, can we sing this song? Because like when we sing this song, God moves. It's incredible. I'm telling you, just sing it. I don't know that song. So you're saying if I sing that song, God's going, yeah, I mean, it worked last week, right? Had this emotional experience. My heart welled up. And, and, and he learned a few of the songs. And guess what? Didn't happen the same way emotionally. I thought, well, because he doesn't sing them right. We, we need to get our youth minister up there. Let him do it. Because if he sings them, then, then we'll be stirred. And, and I, was, I was connecting the movement of God in my life simply with emotion. And I didn't realize what was stirring that emotion was this new cognitive knowledge of the saving grace of God. That was stirring the emotion, not the other way around. And if we're not careful, we're just skipping from emotional experience to emotional experience. In between, we'll just kick back. We'll fall into this mode. God's the one working anyway. Can't wait for him to show up and move me. I'm going to show up at Sunday, every Sunday, just ready for God to move. And I'll know it, too, because I'll start crying. I'll stand up, and I'll sing those songs. That's how you'll know God's moving. You see? We do that. What, what Paul is saying here is so profoundly true. We, we do need to have our emotions stirred for God, but it will happen when our knowledge of who he is abounds. It's why we preach the gospel every week. And every time I hear it, I'm, my, my knowledge of who God is is expanded. My, the, my understanding of the depths of his, his character and his goodness is deepened, and my heart is moved. My heart is moved when my eyes are unveiled to see what is true. So Paul says, it's not just that your love is going to abound. Your knowledge of who he is is going to abound. And guess what happens after that? So will your discernment. Now, we're going to go forward with discernment, what we mean by that in just a minute. But discernment that's not rooted in knowledge, founded in Scripture, isn't discernment to be trusted. Okay? Let me give you an example. If you come to me and say, listen, I need to talk. My spiritual life has just been a struggle. I haven't been in God's Word in months. I really haven't prayed much at all. Things are just a real struggle for me right now. And oh, by the way, I have a word from the Lord for you. Yeah, I'm probably not going to laugh, but I'm not, I'm not going to trust it. I mean, go ahead and share it with me. I'll check it against scripture, but I'm not going to trust it. If your discernment is not rooted in what's true, I'm not going to trust it. You see, when our lives are rooted and we're growing out of the knowledge of what is true, then we gain discernment. Then we're able to see the world the way God sees the world. I don't wake up naturally and see the world right. I need God to fix 
my lenses on how I see the world. And the only way I can do that is to make myself a student of God's word. Don't read the Bible superstitiously, okay? Here's what I mean by that. Read your 10 verses and think that everything's gonna go well for the day. That's superstition, it doesn't work that way, okay? Don't read it superficially. Checking it off the list. I read my 10 verses, so if anybody asks me, I have my quiet time. Make yourself a student of God's word. I, I ask the men in my life group, I use the word excavate. I mean, you roll up your sleeves and you dig in. You don't have a good study Bible or resources to, to help. Man, God's word alone is fantastic. Get some good resources too. Good resources will help you to see it better, will help you with the original languages, paint a historical context, explain words like Galilee and Golgotha and just words that we don't normally use, but ultimately make yourself a student of God's word. You don't need a seminary degree to grow in the knowledge of who God is. You need to open his word and look for him there. And you read God's word and you let God's word read you. And what is true is gonna nourish your spiritual life. And you're going to begin to discern things differently and see the world differently. And when it happens, those aha moments, you see something, rejoice. God just showed you something that you didn't see before. God just drew back the curtains on what is true and showed you something. Rejoice in that. I rejoice in my growing knowledge and discernment. Now remember, he who began the good work is the one who's faithful to complete it. Some of you have caught on already. These are personal statements, okay? Here, here's why these are personal statements. While we know, as we read this historically, Paul is describing what God was doing in the lives of these Philippian Christians, right? We know it's true. And he's going over all these reasons they have to rejoice. Well, here's what we also know. He's writing about us. So what is true for them is true for us. If God's working in them to finish what he began, he's working in us to finish what he began. I rejoice in my growing knowledge and discernment. Okay? God shows you something today or tomorrow morning you open his word and you're able to see the world the way God sees it. Rejoice in that. God just gave you a gift. Paul continues in verse 10. So that, so here's where discernment comes into play. So that you may approve what is excellent. This is a fantastic word here. It means to, to choose what is different or what is better. And I think he implies both of them here. What is both different and better. So think about discernment as I'm trying to discern what choice to make. I typically go through, okay, what is bad for me? What is good or decent and what's best? As I grow in Christ, what happens is I, and I grow in knowledge, I grow in my discernment and I'm able to discern what is excellent, what is best. So what I used to think was best for me has now become either good or mediocre or kind of meh or maybe even just bad for me. I'm now able to discern what is excellent, what is better, what is different. And, and, and you know this by experience, right? Those of you who are already into adulthood, think back when you were a senior in high school, what it was that you thought was excellent. If I just, if I get this, I'll, I'll, I will have arrived, I'll be happy, I'll feel good about myself. For some of you, it was just graduating from high school, right? Like if I could just graduate, it'd be excellent. Some of you, it was a relationship, right? Others of you, it was a certain job or a certain college. Something that you pursued and in your mind back then, you thought that's excellent, if I could just have that, and what's happened is you've grown in discernment, and you've realized what? Meh, it's not quite as excellent as I thought it was. It's, it's at best decent. 
And a lot of the things that we've pursued in life have moved all the way down to just bad for us, right? Horrible. But at one time, what we now see is horrible or bad for us, at one time we thought was excellent. And so what happens? We need to grow in our knowledge of what is true, that we might gain discernment, that we might be able to choose what is different and better. Excellent. As the Holy Spirit works in you on a daily basis and reveals to you what is excellent, and you're able to see brand new, through brand new lenses, that what you loved yesterday in terms of from this world isn't really all that worthy, then you begin to slide it down the category. Yeah, yeah. Man, I can't believe I gave all my time and resources to that. Yeah. Ah, I'm able to choose and discern now what is excellent. We get a new list of values, a new priority system. This is why people at the end of their age, on their deathbed, look back and say things like, I wish I had. What's happening? They're growing in discernment. The ability to choose what is excellent. They're able to discern more clearly. Well, you you can do that right now. As you give yourself to God's word, you read it, your eyes are enlightened, your discernment grows, you're able to choose what is excellent. And anytime that happens for for you, you should rejoice. God just saved me from a lot of foolishness. Has that ever happened to you? Your eyes were enlightened, you went, wow, that wasn't even on my radar as something that would be good. And now I see it as excellent. I'm rejoicing in that. Think about hardships. Hardships refine us and change things. And how many hard things have you walked through in life you now look back on and celebrate? On the onset, doesn't look good. I don't want this to happen. Anything I can do to avoid it, I will do. I can't avoid it. But as you walked through that experience, you now look back with discernment and go, that was excellent. I wouldn't have thought of that in a million years. I wouldn't have chosen that in a million years. But God knew what was best, and he knows what's excellent. I rejoice in seeing and approving things that are excellent. You you begin to see this as a process, right? Rooted in love, growing in knowledge, growing in discernment, growing in in our ability to choose what is excellent. Look at what comes next. The second part of verse 10. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now here's a strange paradox. In Christ, as a Christian, I'm already completely forgiven. I'm already completely made right. I am already completely invited into the presence of a holy God to stand without condemnation. However, here on earth, in my tent, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, right? I'm struggling. I'm groaning. I'm wrestling. I don't feel holy. I don't feel perfect. I don't feel complete. I'm I'm just struggling through this. What's happening? Here's the paradox. In Christ, I am every day becoming what I already am. And that's supposed to throw you for a loop. That's supposed to set you back and go, whoa, 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 how does that work? It's a paradox. How does the seed become a tree that bears fruit? I don't know. I can't fully explain it. I can't fully explain how that's working in us. But you and I are every day becoming what we already are in Christ. That's your journey here on earth. That's why Paul says it this way. What does he say? I'm convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Done at the day of Jesus Christ. There will be a day when God's work in you is done. It's not done yet. You're still on earth. You're still living in the tent. You're still in this temporary dwelling. 
There will be a day when you step out of this tent into your eternal body, your eternal home, the eternal presence of the Lord, and guess what? He's going to be done working on you. No more need for sanctification at that point. But right now, here on earth, every day is sanctification. It's the process of growing and spiritual maturity as a Christ follower every day. Even during seasons when you don't feel it, God is finishing the work he began in your life. He is. And here's what happens. When, when God enlightens our heart to his goodness and our, our, our lives become rooted in his love, Paul says that love compels us. It fuels us. It moves us to now pursue holiness. Now think about it. Holiness isn't all up to me. Going out on my own, making it happen. Nor is it just God working. I'm just sitting here basking in his goodness and I'm being made holy. It's in between. And now my heart is, is, is ignited. I, I'm pursuing holiness. I'm now pursuing being honest. I'm pursuing being right. I'm pursuing being graceful and forgiving and loving. And to my family, my wife, my friends, the people around me, I now pursue this, not to make God happy with me, but because he already is. Not to make God love me more, but because I have found a love that you can't get, it can't get any bigger than, because I already have that love. I'm now fueled to pursue holiness. I rejoice in my pursuit of holiness. Why do I rejoice in it? Because God makes me want to do it. That's a strange thing. It's a strange thing. You know, as Christians, the church is supposed to be set apart in this world. And I think we, on a baseline, kind of all agree with that. But I think where it gets a little foggy is why. What is it that sets us apart? And we buy into these things like, well, the clothes you wear or the sticker on your car, or where your kids go to school, or whatever radio station you listen to, or you, you, you now understand all the Christian lingo, or you know all the words to the praise songs, or you know what, the, what is supposed to indicate our other thanness? We're to look like Christ. We're to be able to discern and tell what is excellent and pursue holiness. That's how we're to stand apart from the world around us that doesn't have the eyes of Christ, can't discern, can't choose what is excellent. They see in us the character of God. And, and, and the scripture said in some way that brings them into a place where they want to exalt and bring glory to God when they see Christ's character in us. He doesn't stop there. Verse 11, he says this too, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You feel that plant growing to the point where now we're bearing fruit. Now, as a seed becomes alive and it bursts forth from the soil and it becomes a little stem with leaves, is it bearing fruit? This is an interesting question. Is it bearing fruit? No and yes, right? It's already in the process of bearing fruit. Just don't eat it yet. It's not gonna taste very good, right? Fruit has, it has to come into full maturity. And so the fruit comes into full maturity and you have to wait for the right time. Jesus says, this is what sets apart those from who hear the gospel and respond the wrong way versus those who hear it and respond the right way. Keep your eye on them. Over time, there's going to be growth, and eventually there's going to be this producing of fruit. We were in Galatians 5 a couple of weeks ago. Good, beautiful description of what it means to bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, love, self-control, goodness, 
Against these things, there is no law. I didn't get them all. I missed two, I think. But you get it, right? Baby Christian producing fruit? Straight question. Yes and no, right? Bearing fruit of love, but guess what? It's going to get more ripe. It's going to get better. It's going to get more mature as that person grows in Christ. And eventually filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're taking notes, I rejoice in the fruit of righteousness. I rejoice in it. When patience comes out of my life, I don't pat myself on the back. I rejoice. Thank you, God, for allowing me to be patient with my boys. Thank you, God, for allowing me to love well. Now, the verse 11, I believe, ends with the apex of it all. Okay? You know the difference between means and end? Means is the process you go through to get to the place you're going. End is the end, the why you do it all. So far, we've only been working through the means. We already talked about, like if you go to Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, Revelation 19 through 22, you're going to read about the end, right? And there's no sanctification process left at that point. Guess what's there? What Paul's going to say next. To the glory and the praise of God. That's the end. That's what you and I are being transformed for, for the praise of his glory. Now let's talk about what that means for just a minute, practically speaking. What is glory? Glory is the outward reflection of God's inward character. When we see God in his radiant glory, what we're seeing is his character, his goodness, his, his glorious being, his awesomeness. Now, here's what Paul says. Um, the same author, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, he says, Right now I only see in part, so therefore I only know in part. One day I shall see fully. Now, the see fully is Revelation 4. That's what we're lost the end. That's what we're aiming at. But right now here on earth, as God works in my life on a daily basis, Paul says, I'm being transformed from glory to glory. Every time one of these moments happens in my life, it's glorious. It's glorious. Every time, I'll use this again because it happens often, my wife humbly forgives me with God's forgiveness. It's glorious. And it's not just a small sliver. I'm beholding the glory of God. From glory to glory. And, and, and listen, we were hardwired to be hungry for glory. We are. Many of you are longing for it right now. It's why when we, we, we walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, this awesomeness and its hugeness, we're overwhelmed for a moment. It's why when you climb to the top of the Rockies and you're standing at the Continental Divide and you feel like you're on top of the world, you're overwhelmed with a sense of awe. It's why if you are a stargazer, you look up into the universe through a telescope and, and you see things that we can't even put names on and we don't understand where those colors are coming from or what's happening up there. You see it and you're, you're awestruck. And we're, we lo- we're hungry for that, aren't we? We long for that. We're starving for the glory of God here on earth. We are we're starving for it in our marriages. We're starving for it in our friendships. We're starving to see God gloriously high and lifted up. That's our end. That's what we're after here. And God's word says that every time transformation takes place in my heart, I'm tasting a little, just a little glimpse of God's glory. It's glorious. That's the end. That's what we're after, to rejoice in the glory of God. That's how amazing he is. There'll be a day where you and I, 
when the, when the good work is done, step into his glorious presence and we see fully here on earth in the process of transformation through trials, through struggles, through opening God's word and him speaking to us, through his spirit working our lives and we're surrendering to it, through all the sudden fruits coming out of my life and holiness is coming out. Every one of those moments is a small pocket of God's glory being revealed. And we're we're starving for it. This is what Paul's getting after here. As we abound in love, we grow up in maturity, grow in knowledge, discernment, choosing what is excellent, holiness and producing fruit. Ultimately, what we're after is this, to rejoice in the glory of God. Christ Father, rejoice in the glory of God. Don't stand and sing thinking that it's going to emotionally move you. Stand and sing and rejoice in the glory of God. Who he is, what he's doing, who he is to you, your family, this church. Right? Rejoice in that. Rejoice in the glory of God. Let's sum it up this way. In Christ Jesus, even though our sins have been forgiven and our eternity is secured at the moment of salvation, God continues to cultivate our hearts by expanding our capacity to love, learn, and live a life in pursuit of holiness and righteousness. We rejoice because God is doing these things in our lives day by day as we fall more deeply in love with him. That's what spiritual growth looks like. Is it God working? Yes. Are you participating? Yes. Is it up to you? No. Is it up to God? Yes. It's a paradox. How do we, how do we discern that? We come back to what is true. We open it. We believe it. We see it, we behold truth. It resounds within us. We say, that's right, that's true. We embrace it, we hold on to it. I'm gonna pray for us now and and really wanna end here. Um, if, If you're here today and you're still not quite sure about Christianity, you're not sure if it's for you, you're just kicking the tires. Um, Could I I just be honest with you? Um, You're never gonna get it by simply becoming a, a student of the word. You're not gonna get it, sim- don't go to seminary thinking, oh, I'll get it one day and it'll make sense to me. Like, here's, how you, here's what you need. You, you need to see the love of God. And what breaks my heart for you right now is not that you're on the outside looking in, kicking the tires trying to decide, do I wanna become a Christian or not? It's that you haven't tasted the goodness of the love of God that beckons you in. And I want you to know that the father of the universe is here today and he's calling you in. He's inviting you in. He's looking at you despite you and saying, I'm not embarrassed by you. Come in. Let me show you what real love is supposed to feel like. Will your emotions be stirred? Probably. Do they have to be? No. I think they will be though. God wraps his infinite arms around you with infinite love and says, welcome home. Um, we're going to pray, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Our um, prayer partners, I'm going to ask you guys to be down at the front and the back. And, I, and I, want, I want you to know this. I know it's awkward sometimes to think, I'm going to go down and talk to a complete stranger and ask them to pray for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. They would be no more blessed than for you to come down and just say, hey, could you pray for me? They would love that opportunity. If you want to hear more about what it means to become a Christian, any of the men and women standing with a prayer, the prayer partner lanyards on would be more than happy to talk with you and pray with you about that. I'm going to pray for us now um, that we would respond 
uh, to this beautiful work that God is doing in us, uh, that he is going to be faithful to bring to completion in all of us. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we do thank you that you are a God of unconditional and infinite love. And, and, And Father, so much about who you are and how much You love us. It baffles us, God. And and I can't help but think that it's supposed to be that way. God, that your love and your mercy is supposed to catch us off guard. It's supposed to surprise us. This morning, God, we acknowledge that there is no better lover here on earth than you. God, right now, for any person that doesn't know that love, that today would be the day they would let you in. They would yield their lives to you. Father, for those of us who know you, very honestly, God, we go in and out of seasons of struggle and celebration. And and this morning, we're so encouraged, God, to know that by faith, you're working in us. You're working in us behind the scenes, below the surface in so many ways. God, this morning, I pray that we could Find ourselves as willing participants, God. For those of us who are lazy and we have our feet propped up, would you, would you call us up out of our seats today to participate in what you're doing? And God, for any of us here today who are really working on our own strength, on our own merit, trying to conquer this thing alone, would you, would you humble us, God? As we just sang before, would you gently bring us to our knees in humility? Would you increase our dependence on who you are in our lives? Ultimately, God, would you grow us to be a people, a people who rejoice in your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.